Well, good morning, church family. Expectations and doubt. I was driving in this morning and I was, as usual, it takes me about 20 to 30 minutes to get here. And I was listening to some Christian tunes. And a couple of the ones that I heard this morning, one was from Michael W. Smith. Above all, like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. And then the next song that came on was by Carrie Job, Healer. You hold my every moment, you calm my raging seas, you walk with me through fires and heal all my disease. And as I listened to those songs and I was thinking about the message for this morning, it caused me to think that maybe there's a little bit of prosperity gospel that's woven into the music that we listen to and the songs that we sing together. Because I wonder, did Jesus really think about me above all? As he was on the cross, did Jesus think about me above the Father's will? Did he think about me above the mission of the gospel? Did he think about me above redeeming his bride? And it caused me to think, it's Carrie Job saying that song, and he said, and she sings, and he heals all my disease. And I wonder, what if your diagnosis is terminal? What if you're not released from the addiction? What if you're imprisoned and you're left there and eventually beheaded like John the Baptist? I wonder what Smithy and Carrie have to say then. I don't know that we really realize it, but I think the gospel that we adhere to, the gospel that we subscribe to, oftentimes is truly a prosperity gospel. The message today is from Matthew chapter 11, so I'd like to ask you to turn there. I'm going to read a passage for us. This is Matthew 11, 1 through 15. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving... Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? 
What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the day John the Baptist, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. In verse 3, John the Baptist asks a very probative question inside of whatever his condition was, inside of whatever that prison cell looked like. John was the rock star. He was the man who was out in the wilderness that droves of people were flocking to come and see, preaching a baptism of repentance. Messiah is coming. And as Jesus walked on the banks of the Jordan, he called out and said, Behold the Lamb of God! With boldness, he rebuked the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You brood of vipers! Boldness and courage. And then John took a stance against Herod for marrying his brother's sister, Philip's wife, Herodias. And because of that, he was thrown in prison. We don't know how long he was there, but he's there. And we don't have any record of Jesus going to visit, sending a card or flowers. Jesus just goes on about the mission of God, advancing the gospel. And it causes John to have this question. He sends his disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or who is coming? Or should we expect, and the word in Greek there is heteron. It means something of a qualitatively different status. I think what John was expecting was the fact that he was the rock star. He was the Tom Brady of Jesus' all-star team. It instructs us that maybe John the Baptist was expecting Jesus to come and break him out because as Michael W. Smith said, he thinks of me above all. Maybe as Carrie Job said, that he's the one who delivers us from all of our discomfort, from all of our insecurity, from all of our unhappiness, from all of our diseases, and certainly this Jesus, if he's Messiah, if he's truly the anointed one, certainly he'll deliver me from prison. 
But what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations? It's not exclusive to John the Baptist. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22, or you can just follow along. Is it in Psalm 22, the psalmist asks the question, My God, my God, why have you abandoned or forsaken me? The same words that Jesus said to the Father on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jeremiah, the prophet is told by God, chapter 19, verse 14, it says, Jeremiah returned from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, stood in the courtyard of the Lord's temple and proclaimed to all the people, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, I'm about to bring on this city and all of its cities every disaster that I spoke of against it, for they have become obstinate, not obeying my words. And then at the beginning of chapter 20 of Jeremiah, it says, Peshur, the priest, the son of Immer, and chief official in the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. So Peshur had the prophet Jeremiah beaten, put in stocks, in the Lord's temple the next day, Peshur released Jeremiah from the stocks. Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call you Peshur, but terror is on every side. For this is what the Lord says, I'm about to make you a terror to both yourself and those you love. You can fast forward towards the end of verse 6. It says, There you will die and you will be buried you and all your friends to whom you prophesied lies. And then the moment comes when Jeremiah, like John the Baptist, like David the psalmist, when doubt comes in, Jeremiah calls out to the Lord, You deceived me, Lord, it reads in verse 7. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You seized me and prevailed. I'm a laughing stock all the time. Everyone ridicules me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I proclaim violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has become my constant disgrace and derision. I say to myself, I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name, but his message becomes a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones, I become tired, exhausted of holding it in, and I cannot prevail. You see, the point is, is that it's not uncommon to have odd expectations for what it is that God's going to do. We can listen to those songs by Michael W. Smith and Carrie Job and countless others that paint God out to be our personal Savior the one to whom that we matter, I matter above all. He's the one who delivers me from every disease. He surely wouldn't disgrace me. He surely wouldn't set out to have me be thrown in prison. Surely not the God who thinks of me 
above all. But what, what happens when that's the reality? See, for John the Baptist, it caused doubt to pour in. So what's that question? What's the expectation? What's your expectation for Jesus, for God? What does he have to do for you in order for you to recognize him as Christ, as King? What's your expectation? And what does it lead to? See, when Jesus doesn't perform, when he doesn't meet our expectation, what happens in our life? When the doubt comes in and we begin to question, maybe I didn't pray enough. Maybe I was never truly saved. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe God's punishing me for some unknown sin. Or maybe, maybe when we're faithful, sometimes things just go sideways. And the question is, is how are we going to respond? I want to contrast that prosperity gospel mentality, that idea that John and the psalmist and Jeremiah had with the Apostle Paul. When the focus is on me and my circumstances, it's easy to lose sight of the gospel and its power. I'm going to read that one more time. When the focus is on me and my circumstances, it's easy to lose sight of the gospel and its power. If you have a Bible with you and you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read for us. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says to them, I give thanks, in verse 3, to my God for every remembrance of you, plural, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you, plural, church in Philippi, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, church of Philippi, because I have you, plural, in my heart, and you, plural, are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment, and right here we find out that Paul is actually writing this letter from prison, giving thanks to the church in Philippi, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And in verse 9 he says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of our God. And in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, it's the slide that's up there, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, being imprisoned, has actually advanced the gospel. 
What has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the entire imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. And I wonder, is that how we would respond? Is that how I would respond if I were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and someone told me to be quiet, and if I wouldn't be quiet that I'd be thrown in prison and that I'd be flogged and that I'd be beaten, how would I respond? Pastor Kevin, you're going to need to stop preaching the gospel there at Poetry Baptist Church. See, Jeremiah tried to stop. He tried to stop, but it came to a point where it was a burning fire within him. He felt like his bones were going to explode. Is that how you feel? Paul goes on in verse 21, and he says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain a man who's in prison for the gospel. He's in prison for the gospel, and he says, you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that because, see, if I'm in prison, whoever's guarding me, who's ever around me, this imperial guard, then they're going to hear about Jesus Christ. And so they're either going to have to listen to the gospel being preached, they're going to have to see that I'm content with my circumstances, or they're going to kill me. And for me, to live is Christ, to live is the gospel, and to die is gain, because I get to go and be with him. And we know that's true because at the end of Philippians chapter 4, what Paul says, in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. And I wonder... Are we, like Paul, content to praise him in every circumstance, in every situation? Or is it only when things are coming up roses in our lives? I want to read something for us. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul writes, he says, I've been involved in more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've even spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardships, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, without clothing, not to mention... Not to mention 
the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Sounds like a nice cushy life that Paul's living. And then Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4:17 and I want you to I want you to picture in your mind all of those things that he's just mentioned. All of the beatings, all of the tragic events, all of the sufferings, and here's what Paul has to say for the airiness, the lightness, the insignificance of our brief affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far surpassing to extreme, boundless, lavish extravagance. What Paul's saying is that in view of eternity, in view in light of the gospel, in view of the fact that Jesus Christ is king and that we get to be together with him forever, whatever it is that you're going through today, this week, this month, an affliction that maybe, as someone pointed out earlier, isn't a phase. Maybe it's a permanent situation in your life, whatever it is. See, but when the end of this life comes, Paul says that it's airiness, it's lightness. Brief affliction producing for us an eternal weight of glory far surpassing to extreme, boundless, lavish extravagance. When you compare those two things, there is no comparison. So I want to ask that question again. When you think about John the Baptist and his expectations in prison that caused him to ask the question of Jesus sending his disciples, are you the one? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we, like how John the Baptist sort of rolls other people in, right? He sort of rolls everybody else into it when he's the one experiencing doubt. Should we expect, what he's really saying is, should I expect a Messiah who's qualitatively different than you? Should I expect a Messiah who's going to deliver me from all of my diseases and when he doesn't, that I'll doubt him, that I'll deny him, that I'll actually reject him? Or even in this, whatever that circumstance is in your life, like Paul, will you praise him? Back to the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus replied to John's disciples, go and report to John. See, John stated just a moment ago in verse 2, now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, what was Jesus doing? Jesus was advancing the Gospel. And he goes on to say this, Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, 
those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor are told the good news. And what Jesus is saying is that, make no mistake, I am Messiah, because I'm here and I'm doing everything that Hebrew Scripture said Messiah would do. Everything. And I'm even going to go to a cross. And I'm even going to die. Not thinking of me, Kevin, above all, but thinking about the advancement of the gospel, thinking about his bride, thinking about the Father's will, above all. And the onus, the weight, the burden that lies upon us is not seeing Jesus as my personal Savior, but seeing whether or not I'm going to praise Him in every situation and circumstance in my life. When does He cease to deserve all glory, honor, worship, and praise? What we learn from Jesus' words is that the gospel changes our focus, it wrecks doubt, and glorifies God. That's what the gospel does, the true gospel. And what we've been talking about, what's been preached and taught from this pulpit and in this church for the last several weeks, if not the last nearly two years, is that the gospel is not about me. The gospel, as Paul says in 2 Timothy, he says the gospel is this. Remember, Jesus Christ, anointed one, descendant of David, risen king, that is my gospel. Is there a need for us to respond? Absolutely. And everyone does whether it's in defiance, in obstinacy, whether it's to stay in our sin, or we can recognize. See, because even the demons believe and tremble. But what they don't do is they don't worship. They don't turn and repent from their sin and their rebellion against God. If you're taking notes and you want to write down the point for today, when we live with Jesus and his kingdom as the focus of our lives, we unleash the power of the gospel. Paul was proof of that. And as it turns out, John the Baptist was proof of that. And as it turns out, Jeremiah was proof of that. Jeremiah went from doubting to praising God. The psalmist, David, in Psalm 22, begins the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And towards the end of the psalm, it turns into praise. Maybe you're in a place in your life right now, a season of doubt a season of question. Maybe you've listened to those songs on the radio that say that He heals every disease, that He's going to deliver you from all of your 
discomfort that he thought of you above all. And then when those things don't really seem to flesh out in real life, it causes doubts. And so the truth is, is what Jesus thought of above all, not to say that he didn't think of you and die on a cross so that you could be a part of the bride, that you could be part of his church. And to that extent, he did think of you. How will you respond? What are your expectations? We began the service today reading a psalm, a part, a verse from a psalm, Psalm 119.87. And the psalmist says, They almost destroyed me here on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts, which means that the psalmist did not forsake his God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you forgive us. A song that we've sung here in the sanctuary. We're sorry, Lord, for the things that we've made it. We're sorry for making it about us and our personal salvation and not about you and your kingdom and your gospel advancing to the ends of the earth. That's the focus. Are you a savior? Yes, you are. Are you Lord? You are. Are you the king, the anointed one? You are. And because of that, you are worthy of all glory, honor, worship, and praise. And so God, today, through the power of your spirit, I pray that you would impress upon the hearts of those who are present. That you would impress upon us a sense of repentance, a need and a desire that Jeremiah experienced trying to contain the power and the passion of the good news of the gospel, to proclaim who you are to the ends of the earth and where we fall short, God, that you would be gracious, that you would be merciful to us. And during this time of invitation, God, that we would simply respond. Maybe it's from a life of sin and shame and doubt. And it's to call out to you, not merely for personal salvation, which is something that you do, but you do more than that. You bring us into gospel community. You bring us into your bride. Help us to be your people. Help us to make you the focus of our lives.